Welcome in to Outkick the Show. I am your fearless leader, Clay Travis. I hope all of you are having fantastic Tuesdays wherever you may be across this great country or this great land. We've got a lot to dive into, but right off the top, I love you, YouTube. I love all of you commenters. I love all of you subscribers. If you haven't already and you are enjoying my show, you are enjoying any clips on this show, click subscribe and like. Hundreds of thousands of you have already done so. I want to get us to a million. That's my new goal. A million YouTube subscribers. It's a big, bold goal. Not very many people get there. I want this show to get there. I certainly appreciate everybody watching on Twitter, Facebook, uh, listening on any different audio device out there. But YouTube, the engagement and the response is phenomenal uh, for this show and for OutKick in general, and I appreciate all of you. I even like you guys on TikTok, and I don't know any of you. Uh, we got a lot to discuss. Uh, NFL Combine underway in, uh, in Indianapolis. What do we think about the quarterbacks in particular? I'll tell you about the five that I watch play the most and how I would break them down. Uh, Brandon Miller. I want to talk about this lawyer statement. Because it feels to me like almost no one read the lawyer statement that Brandon Miller put out, uh, his defense attorney. And the facts are actually undisputed. I talked about this earlier in the day uh, with uh, uh, Dan Dakich and also with uh, the next round live guys down in Alabama. But I want to talk about it with you. Supreme Court today heard the case on whether Joe Biden, with the stroke of a pen, can erase... 400 million, 500 million, depending on what estimate you read, of student loan debt obligation on the behalf of borrowers and take it over onto the federal register. We will discuss that. Plus, college football realignment rearing its head as the Pac-12 is looking particularly wobbly. All that coming your way. But I want to start with the Brandon Miller lawyer statement. Okay, for those of you out there who don't know, and I imagine almost all of you do, Brandon Miller drove a gun to a murder scene in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where a 23-year-old mother was shot and killed. Uh, The gun was in his back seat. It was retrieved there, and it was used to fire eight shots. Uh, The gun was Darius Miles' Alabama basketball player. Miles' friend is the trigger man. And eight shots were fired that from that gun that led to the death of a 23-year-old mother. Since that time, Tuesday of last week, we, we did not know until then that Brandon Miller had driven a loaded handgun there. And Alabama fans have broken their brains trying to argue why what Brandon Miller did was not... Uh, it worthy of him being pulled off of the Alabama basketball team. And I thought, we need to go back through the statement that was provided by Brandon Miller's defense attorney, and I want to make it clear that there aren't actually that many undisputed facts, by which I mean, Brandon Miller knew there was a gun in the car. He received a text message telling him that his teammate wanted that gun because there was an incident underway. And he still drove the murder weapon to that scene knowing both of those things. All of this is undisputed, all right? And my opinion is that Brandon Miller's conduct, at minimum, was so reckless and also so negligent that he should have been charged with a crime. Now, it's possible 
the reason Brandon Miller wasn't charged with a crime is because he's turned state's evidence and is going to be testifying against his former teammate and that teammate's friend. And I'll discuss that possibility here momentarily. But to me, I wouldn't change a word that I have said. And in fact, I actually think if you look at the specifics, almost no one has even discussed in great detail this case. So let's go to the statements that are out there from Brandon Miller's own attorney. Again, let me make this clear. This is Brandon Miller's own attorney. This is their press release that they put out last week. The headline of that is Facts Surrounding Brandon Miller's Presence at Scene of Shooting on January 15th. Okay? This significantly is not the state of Alabama. This is not the prosecuting attorneys. This is not the DA. This is the defense attorney of Brandon Miller. That is, this is the individual who is putting Brandon Miller's behavior in the best possible light. This is important. This is his job. I've been a criminal defense attorney before. I understand the responsibility. It is to put your client in the best possible position. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I do want to contextualize it for you. Uh, This uh, release is occurring because, quote, I want to provide additional facts on Brandon's behalf uh, regarding misstatements. Uh, All right. Brandon didn't go inside the nightclub. All right, but let's go back up here. This is the second paragraph. Mr. Miles brought his legal handgun. Well, let me just read this whole paragraph. On January 14th, Brandon played in a basketball game in the afternoon and later was asked by Darius Miles for a ride to the strip area to go to a nightclub. Mr. Miles brought his legal handgun and left it in the back seat of Brandon's vehicle. Brandon never saw the handgun nor handled it. Further, it is our understanding that the weapon was concealed under some clothing in the back seat of his car. Again, Brandon never saw the handgun and he didn't handle it, and it was concealed under clothing in the back seat of his car. What is significant in this paragraph is what isn't being said. There is no allegation here that Brandon Miller didn't know there was a gun, right? It's just saying he didn't see the handgun and he didn't handle it and that the weapon was under clothing in the back seat of the car. In other words, Brandon Miller knew there was a gun in the car. Again, if he didn't know there was a gun in the car, his attorney would say explicitly, Brandon had no idea there was ever any gun in the car. He doesn't say that, okay? Let's continue. Brandon didn't go into the nightclub. Instead, he left, went to a restaurant to eat. At approximately midnight, Mr. Miles began asking Brandon to come pick him up so they could leave and go to another location and join friends. Brandon advised he would be along later. Approximately one hour later, Brandon began to leave the restaurant to go pick up Mr. Miles. First, he had to give another companion a ride home. Again, I am reading directly from the defense attorney statement for Brandon Miller. Before Brandon arrived to pick up Mr. Miles, Mr. Miles and the individual with Miss Harris apparently exchanged words without Brandon knowing any of this context. And as Brandon was already on the way to pick up Mr. Miles, 
Mr. Miles texted Brandon and asked him to bring his firearm. So, the attorney for Brandon Miller is specifically acknowledging that there was a gun in the car, that Miller knew there was a gun in the car, that Miller received a text message asking him to bring that gun to an individual who was involved in an altercation. All of that is undisputed from Brandon Miller's own attorney statement that is designed to make Brandon Miller look the best possible. So people out there who are arguing, oh, Brandon Miller didn't know there was a gun in the car. According to his own attorney, they haven't argued that. Brandon Miller, he was driving. He didn't get the text message. Well, Brandon Miller's own attorney says that he he did get the text message. Okay? Um, And then he says, uh, again, Brandon... Uh, Brandon, I'm reading from the statement, Brandon never got out of his vehicle or interacted with anyone in Mrs. Harris's party. He was never involved in a verbal altercation with Cedric Johnson or Mr. Davis. Brandon never touched the gun, was not involved in its exchange to Mr. Davis in any way, and never knew illegal activity involving the gun would occur. This is the entire statement of uh, that you can go read yourself, but it ends with Brandon does not own a firearm, never handled a firearm, no knowledge of any intent to use any weapon. He's cooperating as any citizen should who's witnessed a serious incident. Um, Okay. Submitted to multiple interviews, law enforcement, all these things. Volunteered to have his phone contents. All right, all of that stuff. Okay. So it's important to understand when you are involved in a legal proceeding. What is fact? What is uh, disputed? Could be fact or fiction. And what is still to be determined, right? So I'm only focusing on what Brandon Miller's own attorney acknowledges and what the state's attorneys, what the DAs in Tuscaloosa have said. Based on this, it is undisputed fact that Brandon Miller drove his car with knowledge there was a loaded handgun in the back seat to a corner in Tuscaloosa to deliver that gun to his teammate who had demanded it because he was in an altercation and needed his gun in order to have protection. Okay? So Brandon Miller knew that the gun was in his car and he knew that his teammate needed the gun because there was an altercation involved. To me, that is reckless and negligent behavior that is criminal in nature. He delivered the murder weapon to the scene of the murder. If Brandon Miller had simply said, hey, get an Uber, get a ride with somebody else, I'm going back home, I've got your gun in my car, you've been drinking, you don't need to have a gun, stay out of trouble, we're having a good year, that mom would still be alive. That's the reality. That is the facts. These are undisputed facts now reading both Brandon Miller's statement and what was said uh, by the attorneys uh, who are involved in this criminal case, right? In the hearing that happened last week. So let me take it outside of this case. Typically, a crime requires two things. It requires both an actus rea, that is an actual act. Brandon Miller driving the gun to the scene of the crime would be an actus rea. And it requires a mens rea, 
which is an intent. That's why the lawyer here says, well, there was never any knowledge that this gun might be used in a criminal fashion. I would argue with the attorney there and I would say, hey, if somebody texts me and says they need a gun because they are angry at someone else and it is 1.30 in the morning, my expectation is that's not good, right? Criminal activity might follow based on the information that Brandon Miller received. In fact, it's downright likely. If the text message to Brandon Miller had been, hey, I need my gun, it's noon, and we were planning to go skeet shoot on a farm, that's a different text, right? Then you transport the gun. You're not thinking that it's a violent act, all right? Which is why to me, again, actus rea mens rea, but is a typical crime. Many crimes actually do not require the intent to commit a crime. Let me give you an example. You are driving along the road in your car. Uh, You are driving too fast. The road is windy. You get a text message. You look down at your text message and decide to respond. While you're doing that, the way that the road winds, you didn't stay in the center of the road and you veered out and you hit a biker or you hit a jogger on the side of the road and you killed them. You didn't intend ever to do that. But arguably, your rate of speed in conjunction with the fact that you got a text message and decided to respond to it was negligent in such a way that you could be charged with a crime. That, to me, is what Brandon Miller did here. He behaved in a negligent, reckless fashion when he delivered this gun to a street corner in Tuscaloosa to maybe a drunk guy. The guy who actually did the shooting said he was blackout drunk, that he doesn't even remember it because he had drank so much tequila. I think it's reasonable to presume that your teammate might have been drinking as well. And certainly when you're demanded a gun because you're in a confrontation and you need a gun, it's not crazy. It's not rocket science to presume that that gun may be used in a violent fashion. And then, oh, by the way, when you pulled up, somebody came directly to your vehicle and got the gun. You didn't try to stop it. You didn't say, no, dude, let's get out of here. I mean, there are a lot of details we still don't know, but the undisputed facts that we do know from both parties did, uh, to me, show negligence and recklessness. Okay. So, to me, that is enough for Brandon Miller to be charged with a crime. In fact, he should be charged with a crime. What I think may well be happening here is, if you read this statement, Brandon Miller may be testifying as a witness against Darius Miles and his friend in this murder trial. Because it says that he witnessed it all and there's a camera. And the state doesn't want to say that yet because they don't want Brandon Miller to become potentially a target in this case if they understand that he is one of the prime witnesses for the state. That's my theory. Don't know that to be true, but it would seem to add up based on some of these details. What would Brandon Miller be testifying to? We know that there was around 11 or 12 shots fired. Eight by uh, Darius Miles' uh, friend with the Darius Miles gun and several more in response to that. What is Darius Miles and his friend's defense going to be? I can almost 100% guarantee you that they are going to argue self-defense. Their defense is not going to be that there's not a dead body or that they didn't commit the crime by shooting 
that person, this mom, right? There is a dead body. The bullets in her body came from their gun. They did it, right? That's, the, that's a sign sealed delivered. There appears to be video evidence even that they did it. Their only defense in that respect then is that they were trying to defend themselves. So what would a self-defense claim look like? Well, an easy claim for self-defense is somebody shot at me first and then I shot at them back. I was not the initial aggressor. Brandon Miller could theoretically testify as to who fired first. And if he is testifying to that, he's theoretically testifying against Darius Miles' teammate and Darius Miles' friend and saying they are guilty of murder. Now, the Darius Miles defense could still be, well, they flashed their weapon. We thought they were going to fire. They pulled their weapon. We just pulled the trigger first, right? All those are self-defense claims. But Brandon Miller, based on being physically present at this scene, I think there's a good chance that he has turned state's evidence and is avoiding prosecution because he's testifying against these other two guys. Okay? That's my theory of exactly what's going on here. Now, none of this changes the fact that Brandon Miller should not be playing for the University of Alabama. We can argue about where the line is for suspension or expulsion. If you bring a murder weapon to someone who is a student at the University of Alabama and they use it in conjunction with their friend to kill someone and to spray eight bullets into the night just off campus, you shouldn't still be a student at Alabama. Whether you play basketball or whether you're a chemistry or whether you're an English major. You don't deserve the privilege of being a student anymore. And that's why yesterday when I was saying, Jay Billis did his best to bollocks all this up to confuse people. There's a difference between your rights as a criminal defendant or a citizen of the United States as it pertains to due process in criminal charges and your opportunity and privilege to represent a university in extracurricular activities, right? Being a basketball player is a privilege. It isn't a right. If it were a right, then you'd never be able to be suspended, by and large, for team violations, okay? When you look at all the facts, and I don't even know how many people in sports media have done what I just did, right? Look at the Brandon Miller statement, analyze it, Consider not only what is said, what is, but also what is not said. Look at the undisputed facts that are at play here. I don't think this is a remotely difficult decision. The University of Alabama should not be playing Brandon Miller. I don't even think he should still be allowed to be enrolled at the University of Alabama. And I would say that for all the Bama fans out there, if this was the University of Tennessee or the University of Kentucky or the University of Florida or LSU or any other SEC school. And I have always done this. Look at the facts, analyze them, use my best judgment to explain what they mean and what should happen going forward. So that is probably the best detailed description you'll actually have of all of the undisputed facts in this case. And I just want to point out how few people are even capable of analyzing the case, right? 
This is not something that sports media is designed to do. Most members of the sports media struggle to figure out whether there should be an assist credited to someone or not on a pass in a basketball game, all right? The average sports media member is not also going to have any kind of legal knowledge surrounding uh, criminal-related affairs, okay? That's normal. I do, which is why I'm right and why most Bama fans that are trying to analyze this are completely wrong. You can also be like, oh, where did Clay Clay get questioned? I did the next round live today. I went on with them for a half hour and answered every question they had. Uh, And again, focus on the undisputed facts. If there were disputed facts here, by the way, I would have a different opinion. Um, There are not undisputed facts as, as it pertains to this case, what I just ran through. If, what would a disputed fact be? If Brandon Miller was arguing he didn't drive the car there. If Brandon Miller was arguing oh, I didn't have my phone with me. I never even knew that I was being texted. If Brandon Miller was saying, oh, I never knew there was a gun in the car at all. He's not arguing any of those things. He knew there was a gun. He got a text. He drove it to the scene of the murder. That's undisputed. Okay? Um, That is way past enough to get him kicked off the team and frankly kicked out of the university. And that's why I put the ultimate blame on the University of Alabama president, who I think is a coward here. Uh, And I don't even know what kind of decision-making capabilities he has, but I know he's a coward. And I know that he's making the worst decision possible for the University of Alabama. So that is uh, that breakdown, all right? So Brandon Miller, lawyer statement. Brandon Miller, statements that are out there from the court hearing. A lot of undisputed facts. He shouldn't be playing. And right after that, we'll continue the discussion. But first, a momentary break. Um, Let me talk to you about the Combine. Much less serious. NFL Combine currently underway. A lot of uncertainty about what order the quarterbacks are going to be drafted. Who will take them? I saw this storyline and I thought it was interesting and I wanted to flag it. Uh, Anthony Richardson has gone on February 16th. He was 80-1 to to be the number one overall pick. He is now 8-1. to one. Money has been pouring on him, in on him every day. He's the most bet on player to go number one overall, getting 38% of the money, 29% of the handle. Okay, what do we think? I've said, I think Bryce Young is the best quarterback available in this draft. Based on watching an inordinate amount of college football, Bryce Young is the quarterback that I believe has the most elite talent at the quarterback position that I saw last year. My concern with Bryce Young, I would take him number one overall if I had the first pick and I wanted a quarterback. My concern with Bryce Young is his durability. He's not a big guy. He doesn't weigh very much. I think that he could have significant issues going forward from a health perspective. Any quarterback could, but that is my biggest concern as it pertains to Bryce Young. The throws that he made, the plays that he made, his ability to see the field with what, to be honest, I do not think is an elite Alabama receiving core, to me, make him the number one overall pick. Okay? Anthony Richardson. I think Anthony Richardson has the highest ceiling of any quarterback in this draft. Physically, Anthony Richardson could be Josh Allen. 
right? Big, strong, monster arm. In the same way that people questioned Josh Allen coming out of Wyoming, they said he's not accurate. You can't teach accuracy. He's never going to be able to make it in the NFL. What's happened? Josh Allen's a stud in the NFL. Top five quarterback, in my opinion, in the league. I think that Anthony Richardson's ceiling is he could be Josh Allen. The things that I saw Anthony Richardson do at times on the football field Nobody else in college football could do last year. So I understand if you fall in love with him and you think he could be Josh Allen, I understand why a team or teams could decide he's their guy in the first round. Uh, I'm not, who am I not sold on? Will Levis. I watched Will Levis play a ton at Kentucky. I don't see it. Not accurate. Doesn't see the field well. Does it to me have the elite level arm strength like an Anthony Richardson or the elite level athleticism where I could say, okay, you could be Josh Allen. I haven't seen that from Will Levis. I didn't see him elevate his team to a different caliber of play at Kentucky. You can say the offensive line was not good. His overall offensive talent was not elite. Okay, you lost at home to Vanderbilt. That's my response. All of that can be true. You lost at home to Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt is certainly not an elite-level talent team. You, Will Levis, in year two as the starting quarterback for the Kentucky Wildcats, lost to Vanderbilt at home. I understand every play is not, uh, every game is not a referendum on a quarterback, but if you are a stud quarterback, that can't happen. Okay? Jay Cutler played at Vanderbilt. Really weak surrounding cast. He beat Tennessee, I believe, on the road in Knoxville. There was a play level that was super high, even though the caliber of talent around him was not. I would not touch Will Levis. I think it is crazy that he's going to be a first-round pick at all. Uh, Hendon Hooker. I love Hendon Hooker. What he did in Josh Heupel's offense was phenomenal. Some of the throws that he made to Jalen Hyatt, uh, to uh, Tillman, to that offense, and the way that they operated, the speed with which he processed the field, he was phenomenal. My concern is, I think Josh Heupel's offense is next level. And I also am concerned because Drew Locke similarly had incredible numbers in a Josh Heupel offense with Missouri, and then it is not translated to the NFL. So that is my concern as it pertains to Hendon Hooker. I would take a chance on him, second, maybe the third round, because I think he could be very good. But that's my concern about Hendon Hooker is how does he fit in uh, based on what we've seen Drew Locke do already. C.J. Stroud, uh, I would put C.J. Stroud, to me, not as good as Bryce Young, uh, not as athletic as Anthony Richardson, Um, more consistent in his career than Hendon Hooker. I would take C.J. Stroud probably third in these five that I think I know well. I would take Bryce Young one. I love the upside on Anthony Richardson if you want to take a big swing. Uh, I would put C.J. Stroud third. Not convinced he's an elite, elite level arm talent. In the same way I question Hendon Hooker, I think the wide receiver core 
at Ohio State, arguably the best in the country last year. Marvin Harrison Jr., certainly, I believe, the most talented wide receiver in the country. He's going to be amazing next year, too. I'm not convinced that C.J. Stroud is elite, must-have talent. I think you can also ask the same questions about the offense that Ohio State runs that I asked about Hendon Hooker uh, because you look at the guys that have gotten drafted at a high level coming out of Ohio State. We've seen two first-round quarterbacks in the last six or seven years. Neither one of them, to be fair, have yet, uh, and fortunately one of them's already died, but C.J. Stroud, I think, has to overcome my concerns about the offense that is being run at Ohio State. Ryan Day has got a stud offensive system with incredible talent around it. So far, I would be a little bit nervous about C.J. Stroud. So my top five, right? These are the five that I watch the most. I'm not talking about guys that I didn't see play as many games. I saw all five of these guys play a ton. I would go with Bryce Young, one. I would go with Anthony Richardson, two. C.J. Stroud, three. Hendon Hooker, four. And I would then go with Will Levis at five. All five of those guys, potential first-round picks, depending on who you talk to. Um, Again, I'm not saying that's my top five overall. I'm saying that's my top five that I watched play the most games. All right? Uh, So we'll continue to break that down as the combine progresses. Uh, Story out there. Realignment might be happening. Pac-12 is wobbly. They can't quite seem to get everything put together in terms of a TV deal. Uh, They lose USC and UCLA, lose the city of Los Angeles, second biggest in the country, a monster part of their television deal. Stanford and Cal in California do not move the needle in a big way. Washington and Oregon are the two most valuable teams remaining. Could the Arizona schools, Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, Could they make the decision to try to look towards the Big 12? Colorado. Colorado's already been in the Big 12. Could there be a play there for those schools to break off if they're not liking the dollars? Big 12 has now got a deal. Could that be a play? Could the Big 10 circle back around and say, hey, if we're going to take two more bites, we'll take Oregon and we'll take Washington, take the whole West Coast, and bring it into the Pac-12. I mean, bring it into the Big Ten. Maybe. Are the dollars there? Who knows? Would Oregon and Washington take less than a full share? Because even with less than a full share in the Big Ten, they would be able to make more money. All of these very valid, interesting questions. I would say, keep your head on a swivel based on what's going on right now. Uh, Because if the Pac-12 can't get a big television deal then there is a legitimate danger that something could happen there. Okay? Uh, So, breaking that down. Now, big story. Supreme Court today had a hearing on Joe Biden's plan to do away with $400 to $500 billion in student debt, take it off of the individual student borrowers, put it onto our massive federal deficit. He did it without legislative authority. He did it with the stroke of a pen. Is it constitutional? The answer, in my opinion, is no. I think it's going to be a six... I told you this months ago. As soon as this opinion came out, this was a transparent political attempt by Joe Biden to rig in his favor 
the 2022 election to get as many young people to vote for him as possible. This is not constitutional. You can't do this without legislative authority. I think they have established standing to be able to be in front of the Supreme Court. I think it's going to be struck down 6-3. That then means that Joe Biden politically will go back to all the young voters and he will say, this is why you have to vote Democrat in 2024. I will wipe out your student loans and I'll do it legislatively if you give me a Senate majority and a House majority. Spoiler alert. He's not going to do it. Because even Democrats don't want to take on other people's obligations that they took out to be able to get higher degree education. Okay, A lot of this money goes for grad degrees. I didn't finish paying off my student loans until my upper 30s. A lot of you out there have paid off your own student loans, either undergrad or grad. Um, It's a stressful hanging over your head. Uh, But we're not eliminating anything. Right? There's this idea out there, oh, he's going to eliminate student loan debt. No, no, no. The student loan debt still exists. I just have to pay for it. You just have to pay for it instead of the person who got the, uh, got the education. So I believe this is going to be shot down 6-3. It'll be the, at least the third case where Joe Biden has attempted to exceed his executive authority and wipe out uh, the legislative branch. Supreme Court shut down the OSHA COVID shot mandate. Remember, Joe Biden tried to avoid getting legislative authority for the COVID shot mandate, 84 million people, tried to put it under OSHA rules. Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that for the most part. Healthcare workers did have to get the COVID shot, but it was unconstitutional for Joe Biden unilaterally to act based on his executive authority. Also, Joe Biden tried to extend the CDC's eviction moratorium And the Supreme Court also came back and said, no, you can't do that either, Joe Biden. You need to get legislative authority in order to extend the CDC's eviction moratorium. You don't have that authority. I believe they're going to vote 6-3. doesn't have the authority, but Biden already got some of these young voters to show up in 22, and he will now use it as part of his platform in 24 that he's going to give student debt loan relief And by relief, he means take all those obligations himself on behalf of these individual uh, students. So there is your breakdown. We covered a lot of ground on a variety of different complicated topics. I appreciate all of you. DBAP, unless you need to SBAP, go subscribe as always at YouTube, at iTunes, at Stitcher, wherever you get your content. Thank you for being out, Kick fans. I will see you guys tomorrow.